afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is debut novelist Shelley Nolden, whose novel The Vines was published this spring. Shelley, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. So I have to say, having you on the show is just, for me, is this great moment of serendipity. I'm just looking at my Facebook feed to see pictures of my nieces and nephews, and suddenly a writer friend of mine posts this thing about a book that's set on North Brother Island, which is features very prominently in my novel, Escaping Dreamland. Um, and this is actually the second time this year that I've talked to somebody who wrote a book where their character was standing within about 20 feet of where my character was standing at the same time. And I just think that's, I love that sort of intersection between novels. Um, so we'll get to that, all that in just a minute. But first I wanna backtrack a little bit and have you talk a little bit about the journey that, that led you to this novel. We all have journeys, but yours was an especially uh, devastating and, and painful one. Tell us about what led you to write The Vines. Sure, thank you for that question. The Vines was actually my fourth manuscript. Um, you know, I, I didn't try publishing the other ones. I, I, I want to go out with the manuscript really confidently. And as you know, writing is a learning process. While I was working on my third, uh, I was 20 weeks pregnant, went in for a routine ultrasound. We found out that the baby had, had passed away. We did not know at first what had caused it. Um, my OBGYN sent me to an abortion clinic to have the DNC. And while we were there, we found out that my blood was not able to clot. So I was rushed to an emergency room to have the procedure done on hand there. And it took another week and many more complicating symptoms to uh, be diagnosed with an acute form of leukemia. Um, my husband, that that morning, a week later, had rushed me into the ER because I was in so much pain. I said, I just, I need pain medication. So he dropped me off. We had an 18 month old at the time and he went home to care for her. And I didn't return home for 40 days. Um, the type of leukemia I had, my blood wasn't clotting. So I was at risk, risk of bleeding out internally. I was taking an ambulance to a larger cancer center where I could be treated. And I felt during those 40 days, obviously a lot of fear of death. Um, my body was crashing multiple times, um, a, a huge sense of isolation. Yeah. And, and now a lot, all of us have experienced because of the pandemic, what so many cancer fighters go through, um, that removal from society, the physical distancing, the fear and so while I was going through that, you know, that novel manuscript sat on my bedside in the hospital. I couldn't even think about it. Then a few years later, my husband and I were returning from a trip to the Midwest. We were on an airplane. I was working on a manuscript at the time and my husband elbowed me in the side 
tapped the, the plastic window and said, you should write a book about that island. And of course, I had to elbow him hard back as I leaned across him. And I looked down. And there in the East River was North Brother Island. Yeah. It was winter. So without the tree cover, you could see the, the ruins, the structures. And I was fascinated. So as soon as we land, landed, and I admit I might not have waited until we actually pulled into the gate to turn on my phone, I Googled the East River Abandoned Islands and found North Brother Island. And at the time, there were some fascinating headlines about the island's history, as you well know, because of your own novel, Escaping Dreamland. Um, but there wasn't a lot of detail available. Fortunately for me, just a few months later, Christopher Payne released a photography book about his trips to North Brother Island. I'm, I'm sure you've read it as well. Have, have you been able to see that book? No, I haven't because my, my novel was written, I think, before that book came out. So I would, I'm, it's on my to-buy list now. I read about it in your, in your acknowledgments. Well, take it off your to-buy list because I will send you a copy. So thank you for having me on, on your radio podcast. Um, so in that book, he had labeled the structures on North Brother Island and he had maps over time. So those details really helped with the setting. And I married the idea of this abandoned, dark, true place with this little known piece of New York's history with what I was personally struggling with, the, the fear of death, the sense of isolation. And so those that's where the germ of the idea for the novel came from. Yeah. So, I mean, we have to talk a little bit about North Brother Island because this may be the largest gathering in history of novelists who have written about North Brother Island. I'm not quite sure, but, you know, we, we could be certainly we're in the top 10, you know. Um, Tell us just for, for those of our listeners who who haven't read either one of our books, get, give mm -hmm. us just a little introduction to the island um, and its history, because I think that will sort of immediately answer the question that readers might have of why would you want to set a book on this island? Right. So North Brother Island is located in New York City's East River. It's just north of north of Hellgate. So it's right at that bend in the tidal strait before it goes into Long Island Sound. It's next to Rikers Island. And its original use around 1885 was as a quarantine hospital for immigrants with infectious diseases. So those who were poor, too poor to be treated in their homes were sent to this island to avoid contagions within the tenements in New York City. Over the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, they continued to expand the hospital and it really became one of the main quarantine hospitals in the area. As time passed and hospitals became better equipped to treat patients locally, it was no longer used for infectious diseases, but instead after World War I, they treated returning veterans who were suffering from drug addictions there. In the 1920s, tuberculosis was still a focal area. So they were treating that as well as venereal diseases there. And they built a tuberculosis pavilion, which is really considered the, the crown jewel of the island. Um, if, it's definitely worth your time to Google images of North Brother Island and, and you will see the tuberculosis pavilion. Um, in the 1940s, 
the island was used as housing for returning veterans and their families when the veterans were studying at the New York universities under the GI Bill. Once they had all matriculated and earned their degrees, they converted the, the Riverside Hospital, which is the name of the quarantine hospital, into an experimental rehabilitation center for drug addicted teenagers, including the use of isolation in that treatment, you know, the cold turkey detox uh, method. That did not go so well. And in 1963, they shuttered the island and ever since it has been abandoned. There's now a large heron population there, various bird populations. And so it is now a federally protect, protected heron preserve. And up until COVID started, certain individuals could get sanctioned visits through the New York State Parks Department, but that stopped with COVID. So right now, nobody has access to the I think island. it's just, to me, it was such a fascinating place in that it's, I mean, all the history that you say, but also here's this, this forbidden, sort of secret, decaying, empty, in terms of humans, island mm -hmm. that's within sight of millions and millions of people. Uh, right. and to me, that juxtaposition is just just begs. I used it briefly in my book, and you really, I think, delve delve into it. I, you know, the vines is is in a way is a part of a long uh, narrative tradition of novels that we might call island literature. You know, from not the whole book is set on the island, but a lot of it is. Um, you know, we go really from the first novel, Robinson Crusoe, right up to Lord of the Flies, and and lots of others. What is it? What was it about the narrative possibility of islands? Do you think that that draws novelists to their shores? Hmm. Uh, rife with conflict. I mean, what can be worse than being stuck on an island? Um, and you know, another good example of that is Shutter Island by Dennis Lehane. Yeah, yeah. So to, let's let's talk about your characters a little bit. You, you're one of your main characters, Finn. Um, you, we meet him at first on the island, uh, visiting the island, but you've quickly established a sort of multi-generational family background for him that links him not only to North Brother Island, but also to these other eras um, in, in history, to World War II, to the early 20th century. Tell us a little bit about that layered background and, and why you wanted to create that particular family for Finn. Right. It was very important to me to create a plot that spanned the full island's history mm -hmm. because it, it is so fascinating that how could you pick just one portion of the island and so having a family that starts you know with the patriarch back in 1902 um, and then the generations below him allowed me to then delve into the different eras of the island's history and the fact that the that Finn is of German descent felt very natural because as you well know from your own novel, which is that you did a fantastic job of portraying the, the sinking or the, the fire, of the General Slocum, um, that tragedy affected the German community in New York City. And so it felt natural to have the, the German ties for the family. And then, um, you know, and it, do, do you see, I see Finn and then I'm, you know, I'm always curious to like, the way I perceive a, a character versus the way the author perceives a character, we're, you know, we're allowed to perceive them differently. But to me, it seems like Finn in certain ways is, is fundamentally different from other members of, of the family that came before him. Do, do you see that? Do you see him as, as sort of a, a new breed of that family? 
Absolutely. I, I had the words black sheep in my head as I was creating him. You know, that's too extreme, right? We don't like to think in black and white as authors, but I'm certainly moving him in a different direction than the rest of his family, which makes him more approachable for the, the other main character, the, the heroine, Cora. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, Lily, Finn's girlfriend, she has her own uh, health problems, health history. Mm-hmm. And without giving away more than you want to, can, can you talk about how you use her, um, her personal health as a way to not only establish her character, but sort of to create tension in the narrative? Right. Lily definitely serves as a foil to Cora the main character. Um, If I were to say that any of my characters are at all autobiographical, I would, I most relate to her, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, being a cancer survivor myself and with her cancer fears, she to me embodies what so many cancer survivors go through. And those um, still with cancer is just this fear of what can go wrong with their body, mistrust of their body, um, anxiety, PTSD. And so her fears contrast Cora's situation in which because she is so healthy, she has become the subject of medical experimentation by this family. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about Cora for a minute. I, you know, this is one of those characters. So I, I really just kind of want to say, tell us what you're comfortable telling us about this character, because there's mm-hmm. so many surprises along the way that, that I don't want to give too much away. But she is, as you say, the other main character in the novel. And when we first encounter her, she appears to be living on North Brother Island. Um, where, where did Cora come from? I mean, in your, in your creation of her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cora was the answer to the very dark place I was in when I began conceptualizing this novel. Um, it was 2014, which means I had just finished three years of treatment. Um, and I was still very scared of dying. Um, when I was inpatient and didn't see my daughter for in 40 days, I think I was able to spend an hour and a half with her total for the first few weeks, she was not even allowed in the hospital wing because they said that if she hugged me too tightly, she could kill me because of this risk I had of, of, of bleeding internally. Um, and by the time I'd returned home, she stopped asking about me. I mean, at that young age, she, she literally, I was just not part of her world anymore. And for years after that, I, I hated the sound of her crying at night because to me, that felt like a preview of how she would sound and how, you know, desperate and upset she'd sound if I died, if I relapsed and died. And so in battling these inner demons and fears, the protagonist emerged as somebody who is very resilient and strong and, and her superior health is actually, you know, causes her her own set of problems. Right. But so it's basically projecting on her what I felt was so lacking in my own life. So it's hard to read this novel and imagine what it would have been like to read this novel before COVID. 
I mean, you may be the only person, you and your and your friends and your editors may be the only people who know what 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 that would have been like. Um, what what was your timeline for writing it? Had you know by the time you were editing and revising, had COVID started to happen? Because there seemed there seemed to be a few places where, even though I think the the modern part of the novel said it is it two thousand and seven, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you know obviously you can't address it head on, but you do seem to sort of come at it obliquely in a few places. Um, how, how did it? How did the timeline play out in terms of in terms of the pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. The original idea happened in 2014. And the fact that the story deals with vaccine development, pandemics, was really just the nature of the fact that I stumbled upon this island and it was a quarantine facility. So it automatically lent itself to this concept of contagious diseases. I've also always been fascinated by contagious diseases. Um, My term paper in high school was on Ebola I think I would have liked to have become an abo- a biologist, but in advanced bio in high school, I never got an experiment right. Every every <laughs> experiment, my results did not match what they were supposed to be. And I think that, that scared me away from the field. Um, but I have the utmost respect for everybody in uh, the field. And so the, the novel began just because of my personal interest and what fit for the island. And it was finished by the time COVID started. And for it, it, there's references to historical pandemics throughout. And so I had done extensive research and I, you know, have my charts of every disease mentioned, you know, how they're spread, if there's a vaccine, what the symptoms are, how long the onset is. And so when COVID, uh, when COVID, you didn't call it that at the time, started emerging in Wuhan last January, I was terrified because I'd spent so much time as a author imagining what it would be like to be in a pandemic. And so I I looked at my Amazon receipt. It was January 17th. I ordered hand sanitizer, face masks, you know, Clorox wipes. And then I convinced my mom to go to Costco with me to stock up on emergency supplies in case it spread. And so we each pushed a cart and I got all sorts of dried noodles and, you know, we got to the register and I felt so embarrassed at that time, right? Because it was really contained to Wuhan. And so I I might have told the checkout clerk that I bought a lake house that we were stocking up. Um, But, you know, I guess that's only a white lie. And, and then of course, as things developed, it felt very eerie. And as we all know, tragically, New York was at the epicenter of it. And so at that time, I looked back at the novel manuscript and we, with my editor, we made some very minor tweaks and we couldn't believe how naturally um, we could make some references to coronaviruses because there was the SARS epidemic in 2002, which is another coronavirus. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was fascinating to me to, to think about having, you know, having written about North Brother Island as you did too, to watch those moments in New York when they were when they were burying bodies not on North Brother but on another you know nearby island that similarly hadn't really had people living on it for a long time it was mostly used as a as a potter's field it just seemed to sort of tie all that together one of the experiences that I had with Escaping Dreamland is that um, 
I mean, it's, it is on a personal basis, kind of what you just went through, a, a, a world changing experience. So between the time I finished writing the book and the time it was published, my father passed away. Mm, I'm sorry. And when I came back, you know, to read the book in the final edit, it was like a whole different book. Um, I was suddenly seeing themes and things that were connected to loss of a parent or the loss of a, of a you know, that I hadn't really noticed in the book before. Did you have that experience when you, when you read through the novel, when you're working on editing um, after COVID had started, did it, did you see the novel differently or did it, or was it just, wow, I can't believe I wrote this novel at this time? It was a little bit more of the latter, but the phenomenon you're talking about, I've definitely seen in reviews because oh, one yeah. of the themes um, in this book is there, there's medical ethics questions and what can be done at one person's expense for the greater good. Right. And I think for readers, the reality of the devastating consequences when there is not a vaccine readily available on day one, and then, you know, what suffering can a person go through to benefit humanity? Yeah. And, you know, we, we all saw over this past year, all the suffering that could have been avoided if there had been a vaccine ready on day well. So one, so I think the reality of what we've lived through made the ethical questions that are presented in the novel much more tangible for readers. So, you know, we've talked about a lot about disease and your research about disease and, and it obviously plays a lot into the plot and the story of this book, but it seems to me that disease and not just infectious disease, because I would include, you know, Lily's experience and, and others, um, really intersects with the subject of identity uh, in this book. And that's another place where I found a real intersection with, with your book and with Escaping Dreamland, because that, to me, when I was working on it, I thought it was very much a book about identity. Can you talk about the broader meaning of, you know, just in general of disease and how it connects with identity? Right. Well, I'll start with my personal experience. I, when I was in treatment coming out of the hospital, I felt very ugly because, well, let's face it. I, I was ugly while I was in the hospital and coming out. Um, you know, of course I lost all my hair, which is not what made me ugly. It just, I was very, very ill. Um, and when I say ugly, right, that that's right there. You're, you're seeing in me an identity issue. Yeah. I can't differentiate the inside versus the out. And during that period, I felt ugly because inside me was something trying to kill me. And I felt broken beyond imperfect that my body had produced something that was now trying to kill me. And, you know, it, it was hard to look in the mirror, to see my hair gone. I, I lost my hair the, the morning that um, Prince William and, and Kate got married. Mm. Well, I was watching on TV, right? Because that was afternoon in England. Yeah. I was up at, I don't know, whatever that was, three or four in the morning. And while I was watching her walk down the aisle in this gorgeous wedding dress, I was pulling clumps of my hair out yeah. as a 31 year old, you know, not all that much older than her. And so I, you just can't 
separate what's going on inside from how you're feeling on the outside. And so that sense of identity does carry through to the novel where, you know, Cora, and again, I don't want to give anything away, but the things that are wrong with her, she, she cannot differentiate between, you know, how others perceive her and how she feels about herself. Yeah. And I think that's a, you know, that's an important issue to, to sort of bandy about this idea that yes, a disease or an illness is something that happens to you, but it's also part of who you are and it, and it shapes our identity. And, and, you know, one of these, one of the other, to me, almost bizarre connections between, between my book and yours um, is that when I started, first started figuring out what I wanted to write next and, and working on the earliest notes for Escaping Dreamland, um, I was recovering from cancer, a much less severe form of cancer than what you had, but I was lying awake late at night, not being able to sleep. And, and uh, you know, so it's just one of those things where I, I just felt so many different connections to this book. And one of those is that about, now I know this because I have to read these um, electronic galleys these days, you know, mm -hmm. so I know what percentage of a book I've read so far and about 10% of the way into this book, um, we suddenly plunge back in time to 1902 um, which is more or less the world that I was writing about in Escaping Dreamland. How did you discover and react to that period in the history of New York? Yeah, the, the resource I found most helpful was Jacob Reese's writings, um, the book, How the Other Half Lives. Um, you know, that was, that's an interesting question because on so many fronts, you know, our, with so many advances, the world has changed, right? I mean, as simple as going from horse-drawn carriages to cars. But on the other hand, and I thought about this a lot as I was creating the reader's discussion guide, a lot hasn't changed in terms of attitudes towards immigrants, inequality, um, you know, just how, the, how, you know, the 1% lives versus the rest of the country. So it, in some ways, it's a little disheartening looking at those comparisons and, and seeing that we we haven't made the progress that we should have. Yeah. Did you feel like, I mean, I, I thought um, for me, the city of New York was basically a character in my novel. Did you mm -hmm. feel that way about North Brother Island itself? Did you, did you see it as having sort of a character arc? Absolutely. And I think that was a bit of the discovery process with writing. <laughs> Whereas it's, you know, when you're sitting with the blank page and you don't know what the novel is going to turn out to be, I, I probably erred in terms of making it too much of a character initially. And the very first draft of the first chapter I ever had, had one of the herons kind of circling the island, get, you know, with the bird's eye view of it. And, you know, good thing that didn't make it into the final copy. Um, but it absolutely thought of the island as a, as a character. And one of Cor Cora's traits is that she does, she, she spends so much of her time alone on the island, particularly once it's been abandoned in 1963, that um, she actually speaks to the island. Yeah. So I guess it is a character in the novel. I mean, I, I, I spoke to, I interviewed Elizabeth George yesterday, who's a mystery writer who's just written a book about her process. And one of the things she said about characters is she wants the reader to feel like the character had a life before the beginning of the book and the character's gonna to continue to have a life after the end of the book. And I really felt that way about North Brother in, in your book that, that you know, I could see where it had come from. And yet there was this notion of, there's gonna be a future for that island. And, and I don't know what it is. 
you're working on a sequel of this book, so maybe you know what it is. But right. uh, but I, but I really like that that way, not just of the human characters, but that the island sort of felt that way too. That that we were just sort of part of a continuum and not really seeing. You, you didn't try to like, you know, tie everything up at the end and say this is the end of the North story of North Brother Island. Yeah. Right. Well, and sadly, I've read that if things continue on their current trajectory with rising sea levels. Um, North, Bra- North Brother Island will be will be below sea level by the end of this century. Yeah, yeah. So another, speaking of sad things, another great convergence in our two novels is that we both, both portray what was the greatest uh, single loss of life in New York City prior to 9-11, and that's the General Slocum disaster. But we portray it from completely different points of view. I have a character who's on the boat, um, and you have a character who's watching from the shore of North Brother. Um, and I wonder if you could, first of all, if you could talk about both the opportunities and the limitations that you found in writing that scene from the particular point of view that, that you wrote it from. Sure. Um, the, the biggest opportunity was to highlight the rescue efforts mm-hmm. by the staff at Riverside Hospital on North Brother Island. So, of course, there's a lot of tragedy in that scene in terms of what happened, but it also helped that I could show people being saved as well um, and really focusing on that end result. Um, But it it certainly was limiting in terms of giving the reader the full sense of what was going on. And, you know, it was, it was a challenge to, to make sure I, subtly eased in enough detail after the fact to give the reader the information that they didn't have just suddenly seeing the ship coming towards the island. Yeah, I think if people want a, a interesting lesson in point of view, um, they could do a lot worse than to read this scene in these two novels um, where you're seeing the exact same historical event taking place from, from the point of view, not only of two very different characters, but you know, just two different physical places. Uh, to me, reading that scene in your novel was, was a really good um, lesson in point of view, having, having sort of seen the whole thing from a, from a different place. And, um, and I found very fascinating. We had one detail overlap where a young that. boy, flagpole, yeah, he climbs and this, this happened. So, yeah. you know, we were both did our, our research. Um, a young boy climbed a flagpole to try and escape the flames and you know everyone involved in the rescue efforts paused in that moment to watch this boy and and you delved into efforts that began to try and save him and so it was very interesting seeing this one event through two different perspectives so i was going to ask you about that because i i had very specific narrative and character driven reasons for wanting to include that that detail and i'm I'm curious if you also had specific reasons that that detail had resonated with you in a particular way that it that made it relevant to your narrative. Um, it did from the standpoint of one of the families involved in the story has has a young son, um, but I think more so I included it because of it. Simply put, it was hard not to. Um, It was such a strong moment. And so few people are aware of this tragedy in New York City's history. 
that it helped, I think, really bring it to life in, in the severity of what happened. Yeah, I, one of the things I did when, in researching that was to go through all the newspaper accounts. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that moment where the boys on the flagpole is one of those places where I actually took a sentence or maybe two out of a newspaper account and just plopped it right down into my narrative so that I would really be anchored to that. Um, you know, the way people in New York who were not on the boat experienced that for the first time would have been, you know, through the newspapers. Um, and so that was, but I, again, it was just, it was wonderful to see that, um, that detail pop up in your novel. And I was right. like, I, I feel like I know that little boy. I had that um, same feeling. So in addition to everything else that's going on here, um, this great historical background, all of this um, uh, interest in the, the history of infectious diseases and the possible ways we might cure infectious diseases that, that is happening in the novel. There are also elements of the thriller in, in the vines. I mean, there are some really intense scenes where protagonists are, uh, you know, in, in bodily harm's way. And, uh, you know, you're kind of grabbing onto the, the, well, in my case, your iPad as you're reading this thing. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about, about writing those scenes and specifically about the importance of, of pacing and how you place those scenes into a, a larger narrative to, to make them work? Sure. You know, that's, it's an interesting question because, the story evolved just because that's where my cre creativity was going. Mm -hmm. um, but I've since seen my book referenced as historical fiction, thriller, fantasy, science fiction, and <laughs> horror. <laughs> so hopefully that's a good thing when you're merging genres. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it definitely presents challenges in terms of appeasing readers of multiple genres, um, also making it feel like a cohesive narrative and instead, because there are two timelines in the story. One is historical fiction, one is present day. Yeah. Present day does have more of that thriller, thriller vibe. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's, it's bringing that tension into both the past and the present to create that consistent thriller vibe. Um, but I also do think that there are, are a lot of readers who enjoy both historical fiction and thriller novels. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I, that was really interesting hearing you list all the different genres because there was one that was not on that list that struck me. Uh, and I wondered if you felt any connection to it and that is magical realism. I mean, without going too far into what happens on the, on the Island, I, I, I felt that a little bit. Is that a is that a genre that you have read in or that you felt influenced by at all? Yes, and I was influenced by um, the novel Forever, which was also set in Manhattan, and that definitely has a, a strong magical realism uh, elements there as well. Yeah. So yeah, okay. So how many are we up to now? Is that you get a lot? Yeah, <laughs> and, and I and a, a question or two ago, it was not a coincidence that I used the plural protagonists. Mm -hmm when I was talking about um, your characters. do you, I see this, again, this is another thing I think it has in common with my novel. I see it as a novel that has multiple protagonists. Did you, did you feel that way as well? Right, I, um, definitely. And I felt like I, I needed to have 
that representation from the family that the family that constitutes the antagonist, there's multiple generations. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm a little old fashioned. I like that idea of, you know, a damsel in distress and, and somebody trying to save her. Um, I also like very strong independent women. So, say, you know, great. who saves who is a bit of a yeah, uh, yeah. push and pull throughout the novel. Yeah. Yeah. There, and you know, another, another, uh, I would say push and pull throughout this novel is the morality of what's happening. There's a lot of moral gray area in this novel. You sort of touched on this before about to what extent um, should the liberties of the individual be sacrificed for the good of the, of the greater society. Um, but there are also some, there's some characters who are not so gray. Um, and one of those is, is Ulrich, who is, I, I believe that's Finn's grandfather. Is that right? I, there's a lot of generations in this novel. But he, he is a man who you, you show his cruelty as sort of directly linked to his father's neglect. And I wonder to what extent as readers, you think this might modify our ju judgment of him or even as a writer, if it helped you, if that helped you to see him more sympathetically as, you know, as a fully developed human being rather than just a cut out cruel person, you know? Yeah, I think that the father's neglect is a big element with him. Um, it's also something as I'm working on the sequel that will be explored more in the sequel. And I think that's what I'm really enjoying about staying with these characters for never, another novel because there's just so much to mine in terms of this somewhat large cast and, you know, what has caused them to behave the way they are. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like for Ulrich as a young boy to, you know, not have his father present um, and so that definitely influenced how I you know, created his adult, the adult version of his character. Yeah. And I think that's, that's always um, a question as writers, we want to ask about our characters and as readers, we want to um, at least get hints of is, is why does somebody act the way they do? And, and what's to me, what was fun about this novel is you have, you have some people acting in some really strange ways. I mean, you know, the way that, that we the first time we see Cora, um, you know, she's throwing scalpels at, at, at Finn as, as we don't know, warnings, weapons, we're not really quite sure, but like, I don't think I've ever seen a, a character you know, like use a scalpel as a spear almost. And so, so you immediately start to have these questions about why is this character acting the way that, that they are. And, um, and I like the way those answers kind of play out and are not necessarily you know, you don't feel like you have to explain every little thing, but if you give these hints of their background, then we start to start to get a sense of that. Right. Um, one of the one of the themes that I felt in this book, and I think you touched on this a little bit earlier, and it's a theme I've felt a lot lately in books that I've read, and I don't know if that's just because people are writing about it, or because it's just my point of view as a as a reader in lockdown. I mean, today mm -hmm. is actually my two weeks after my second vaccine day, so like I've been. The last 13 months, I've been reading a lot alone in the house, you know, but but I feel like that isolation is a is a theme that that has been coming up a lot and that comes up in this novel. Can you talk about that um, that theme in the vines? Sure. Um, as I mentioned earlier, that the isolation has been a theme 
for me for years, just having had that experience where I was hospitalized and a lot of cancer patients go through it. I'm involved in a cancer organization um, whose mission is to improve the quality of life for cancer patients. And so I'm very active in the cancer community and a lot of cancer patients feel that sense of isolation. And so it, it felt very natural to me to write about that as I was crafting this novel. Um, And then just as the pandemic was unfolding and then all of a sudden everyone was isolated, that was a very surreal, eerie sensation to have something that was such a familiar struggle now be shared with everybody. Um, So it's, it's now, unfortunately, everyone can relate to it. Yeah. And I feel like they're characters, you know, they're obviously characters in this novel that are physically isolated, but they're also characters who are emotionally isolated and intellectually isolated. And I mean, I I feel like you play with that uh, in a lot of different ways. And, and to me as a reader, that theme is always something that we can connect to. I mean, yes, more post COVID, Mm -hmm. but, but I think we all have internal lives that other people don't know about. And the very nature of that is, can, can be isolating just the nature of, of being a human being with, with an internal thought process, you know? Um, well, one more question before we, before we go into our end. And that is, I've, I've had that same glimpse of North brother Island out the, out the window of the airplane. Um, and as you might expect, it is covered with vines and they are vines that conceal they are vines that destroy, um, why did you want those vines to be the title of your novel? The, the coming up with the title was a fascinating exercise. And let's just say there's a lot of suggestions that I'm glad did not make it onto the cover. Yeah. Um, but when we were brainstorming, we started going in a direction around more of the medical pandemic aspects. And this is not pandemic fiction. Um, it's got elements of medical thriller. Oh, let's add that to the list of genres. Um, but it's not a straight medical thriller. Like yeah. when you think of Robin Cook. Yeah. So, you know, virions, that's the plural virus, right? That's awful name for a title. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I was playing with the idea of like the vines and virions and my publisher's like, no, no, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe you don't even belong in this conversation, but then from that became, well, why not just the vines? And the vines, not only, as you said, are they very omnipresent on the island? And I find it fascinating that kudzu vines can grow a foot a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's also a great metaphor for both that um, transformation um, from the human um, inhabited island back to nature, mm-hmm. as well as you know, what can happen with a pandemic in terms of its spread or just, you know, evil ideology, how yeah. insidious that can be. Yeah. yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. Um, you should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners a little something to think about and some insight into you and to your process. So if you're ready, we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Rubble. Oh, yeah, that's a good one for North Brother Island. (laughs) (laughs) What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? 
literally. Yep. Where's your favorite place to write? My back porch with my dog at my feet. I think I have a dog at my feet right now, actually. Um, where could you never write? In the swimming pool, though <laughs> I do come up with a lot of plot fixes while I'm swimming laps. Yeah. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Avoiding sentence fragments. What was the first book you remember reading? Ramona and the Pest. Oh, gosh. What are you reading now? Well, I <laughs> truthfully am reading Escaping Dreamland, um, as we've been discussing. But what's next on my TBR pile is Little Pieces of Me by Allison Hammer. Mm -hmm. And what book would you like to have written? Mystic River. Oh, yeah. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I don't know if I can answer that because as we've discussed, I, I'm not really wed to one genre. Yeah, yeah. And, and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? That they admire my imagination. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Shelley Nolden, whose novel, The Vines, is available wherever books are sold. Shelley, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to best-selling novelist Christine Mangan about her new novel, The Palace of the Drowned. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. <laughs>